0: This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 855 a.m. Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can
1: change.
2: Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford and salut Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. This show was first broadcast in 2022. Some calls to action or details about action may now be out of date, but please, listeners, do continue to take climate action. All of us are needed.
1: It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got. But it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377.
2: This is the era of accountability and we are watching how the pledges made at the Glasgow Climate Conference are being kept. Today we look at the methane pledge from COP26 and here's Amelia to explain what it is. Methane receives significant attention at COP26 due in large
3: part to the announcement of the Global Methane Pledge. Led by the US and the European Union, the goal of the Global Methane Pledge is to slash global methane emissions by 30% by 2030. The pledge has been signed by 111 countries, And some significant actions have been taken in areas like the EU to better regulate and control methane
2: emissions from oil, gas and coal. Australia didn't sign that pledge. And I think our mainstream media won't report much on how we can cut this low hanging fruit. They widely reported the disappointment many people felt at the United Nations process, but that doesn't let them off the hook. So here is Ursula van der Leyen from the European Parliament. What a pleasure to be here with you, excellencies,
4: distinguished guests, my fellow leaders, ladies and gentlemen. When we talk about climate action, we look at two different horizons. There's one, of course, of climate neutrality by mid-century, but there's a second one, and that's the closer one. And this is much more urgent, and this is the horizon of 2030. We have to act now. We need big structural changes, yes, to reach 2050, climate neutrality, but we cannot wait for 2050. We have to cut emissions fast. And methane is one of the gases we can cut fastest. Doing that will immediately slow down climate change because we all know methane is a powerful greenhouse gas. Roughly 30% of global warming since the Industrial Revolution is due to methane emissions. Methane is 80 times more global warming than CO2. And today, global methane emissions grow faster than at any time in the past. So cutting back on methane emissions, is one of the most effective things we can do to reduce near-term global warming and keep 1.5 degrees Celsius. It is the lowest hanging fruit. On September 17th, when new President Biden, dear Joe, hosted us for the Major Economies Forum, the European Union and the United States announced the Global Methane Pledge. Since then, our climate envoys, John Kerry and Franz Timmermans, have worked intensively, tirelessly, to gather support. And today, just over six weeks later, we are officially launching our methane pledge. And we're proud and happy and grateful that over 80 countries have signed up. This is fantastic. Thanks to you. Together, these over 80 countries commit to reduce global methane emissions by at least 30% by 2030 from 2020 levels on. Methane emissions come from various sources. We all know oil, gas, coal, agriculture, and land fillings. These sectors have different potential for short-term action. The greatest potential for cuts is, without any doubt, in the energy sector. And this is why next month, us, the European Commission, we will propose to regulate methane emissions. We will introduce rules to measure, to report, to verify methane emissions, rules to put limits on venting and flaring, and rules to detect leaks and repair them. And of course, our common agriculture policy is also increasing its focus on tackling methane emissions distinguished guests ladies and gentlemen fellow leaders the global methane pledge makes cutting on methane emissions a collective undertaking this must of course be supported by a sound scientific basis and a capacity to monitor and to calculate methane emissions BECAUSE WE ALL KNOW THAT ONLY WHAT GETS MEASURED GETS DONE. SO THAT'S WHY THE EUROPEAN COMMISSION SUPPORTS THE SETUP OF AN INDEPENDENT INTERNATIONAL METHANE EMISSIONS OBSERVATORY THROUGH THE UN ENVIRONMENT PROGRAM. BUT WE ALSO ALL KNOW THAT AS IMPORTANT AS THIS PLEDGE IS, IT IS ABOUT MORE THAN HITTING TARGETS. THERE ARE CLEAR BENEFITS TO CUTTING emissions, METHANE EMISSIONS Yes, for the planet, but also so much for the people, too. Because if we deliver on this pledge, we can prevent over 200,000 premature deaths. We can prevent hundreds of thousands of asthma-related emergency room visits and over 20 million tons of crop losses a year by reducing ground-level ozone pollution. I want to thank all those countries that have signed up to the Global Methane Pledge. With this Global Pledge, we are making COP26 the moment when the world moves from
2: aspiration to action. Tonight you will hear about how Australia is already cutting its agricultural emissions and how much further we have to go. Our guest producer, Amelia Gunerich interviewed ANU professor Mark Howden. But to start, here is where the methane emissions can't be controlled, in the Arctic permafrost. All the more urgent reason to stop the Arctic warming any faster than it is, is for us to cut our emissions that we can cut in industry, in power, in agriculture and in transport. Dar Jamal speaks to us about his book, The End of Ice. After years reporting from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, he said it was even more crushing to report from the frontiers of the climate disruption. It is a beautiful interview from someone who knows just how hard it is to deal with these realities. The music to set the scene is by Lapland Element Orchestra. It's about a night in the midnight sun with silver frost in winter and methane bubbling or even exploding from the land and water. will take us to the cryosphere. Dar Jamal loves glaciers and his book The End of Ice takes him from years as a war correspondent to Alaska. He is the winner of the Martha Horn Prize for Journalism which shows you how valuable he is and his work is. And today I'm going to ask him about permafrost and the methane which comes out as it melts. So welcome, Da. Could you start by telling us what it's like where you are?
5: Well, thanks Vivian, good to be with you. And I am speaking with you from uh, Washington State in the United States, and I live on the Olympic Peninsula. So it is pretty mild here, uh, which it typically is because we're a maritime climate, um, but pretty quiet. I live in a good place, Mm -hmm. surrounded by a whole bunch of trees uh, right on the edge of the Pacific Ocean.
2: Mm, Sounds lovely. There's a quote at the front of your book, The End of Ice, where poet Wendell Berry says, there are no unsacred places, there are only sacred places and desecrated places. Could you talk about that?
5: Well, and I I included that because it's really kind of riffing off of what indigenous peoples on the planet have long since known, which literally any point on the earth could be considered the center of the world to them, depending on if you're viewing it with the appropriate sacredness and value for what it is, everything is sacred. And, and in, the, in that ontology, uh, the trees are the tree people, the stones are the stone people, the the, the fish are the finned brothers and sisters, and et cetera, et cetera, on through the animal. Kingdom. And so we we are part of them and they are part of us. And how we treat the earth is how we treat ourselves, and vice versa. So uh I, you know, really getting back to the to pre-industry uh is I I where I tried to take some of my thinking, especially towards the end of the book, because This all comes down to how industrialised humans have been treating the earth, which is dramatically different from how it was treated for millennia by uh, the original peoples on the lands.
2: Yeah, we don't often use the word desecrated in the newspaper. And, for example, in Australia we've got Aboriginal people where the greatest coal mine is about to open. Uh, They're called the Wangan and Jagalingu people, and they've been conducting continuous ceremony there Um, Other people have gone up to join them, but they've just continued, continued the ceremony to stop what is for them a desecration of, first of all, their water, but the whole landscape, you know, if it's mined, is destroyed for them. So I think that idea of desecration would be good if we made it more a current term, you know, to desecrate something.
5: Right. Instead, you hear words like developing or extracting resources or things like this, which kind of like, you know, the the term climate change. I mean, in global warming, those were both terms that stemmed out of the fossil fuel industry uh, instead of calling calling it global heating or the climate crisis, uh, which are far, far more appropriate to what's happening. And Mm -hmm. I think it's very important that we watch our language, which is Mm -hmm. another reason why, for example, in. The book, people have always asked me as a journalist, why do you call it climate disruption instead of global warming or climate change? Because climate disruption is a far more scientific specific and I think accurate term for what it is. So that's a very good point.
2: Yeah. Well, would you tell us about your trip to the Arctic Circle? Your book's very descriptive and I can see you've just traveled very long distances and, and interviewed so many people for that And as you went up in the plane, there were oil workers on that plane and the Trans-Alaska Pipeline was below and you met elders, scientists, and listeners will like to know. Someone from, I think it sounds like community radio, it was called the Top of the World Radio. And um, listeners will be surprised at how fast climate change is affecting the permafrost. Can you just tell us, you know, describe that trip?
5: Yes, so I went up to... A town, a village called Utqiagvik, uh, formerly known as Barrow, Alaska. It's the northernmost point in Alaska and thus the United States. And um, there's a lot of oil development happening um, in that general vicinity, which is why there were so many, it's called the North Slope uh, of, of giant oil extraction enterprises going on up in Alaska that have been going on for decades. And so The plane was filled with these folks. We made a pit stop at Prudhoe Bay where where they all got off and then another short leap over to Utqiagvik. And I went there because it's a jumping off place for uh, American scientists to go up and study what's happening across the permafrost and what's happening out over the the shelf of the Arctic Sea, the shallow seabeds where there are these frozen methane hydrates. And so that's why I went and I was very fortunate to get to interview several key scientists studying these things. And I think even more importantly, the conversations I had with the locals, and particularly at the time the, the, the uh, village elder Wesley Aiken, who since passed on, but he was 92 years old at the time of our interview. And I, I put, frankly, more weight on what the locals were sharing. Um, Science calls it anecdotal evidence, but these are the people who've been there for thousands of years and watched the changes and have the stories pass from generation to generation. And what I heard, particularly from Wesley Aiken, about the speed and the acceleration of the changes that he had seen in his lifetime, and that the warnings were coming even from his elders, so even right back at the advent of the the, the steam engine and industrialization and such, um, they saw what was coming and they said, "Look, if this isn't changed, uh, this is not going to end in a in a good way." And so we talked a lot about things like that, but um, you know, it, it's. What I, I This is the really the last chapter of the science part of my book before I get into the conclusion where I start t- getting kind of philosophical and talking about, okay, how are we going to live during this time? Because this chapter is so intense. Because if you look at how much carbon and CO2 equivalent is stored in terrestrial permafrost, which permafrost uh, all around the Arctic is basically these giant stores of frozen organic material. It's old dead plant material that's been frozen into um, this ice that's just below the tundra surface. And uh, that wasn't a problem until uh, the climate crisis began. And now we have for meters down because things are warming so much faster in the Arctic, uh, two to three times faster than they are in general, anywhere else in in the world. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, most people who are familiar with the climate crisis listening to this, this is not news to them. But those who haven't heard this, this is super important because all of this stored and trapped carbon Um, As these areas are warming up, and they are warming up as we speak, we already have arctic villages that are that are right on the coast that are literally melting into the Arctic Ocean. Um, As sea ice uh, is is there's less and less sea ice as everything warms up. Now there's bigger waves hitting these shores, hitting this permafrost. Um, It's it's one of the feedback loops happening up there. So you can already see visibly uh, tangible evidence of this happening. Right there in Utqiagvik where I was, there was a, a front loader, a big bulldozer working, um, sometimes 24 seven. They'd constructed a big 20-foot, uh, um, about a, a six, seven meter um, uh, berm uh, between the Arctic Ocean and the town itself to try to slow down that wave action. Because literally the, the coast was getting periodically every year fat, closer and closer to the village. And already you see the permafrost thawing, building buildings are tilting and having to be kind of, you know, construction crews come in and try to fix these things. So big problems, but the thing with the permafrost is there are massive amount of organic stores in the permafrost. In fact, well more than the CO2 equivalent than we've already, that are in the atmosphere of CO2 that's already in the atmosphere right now. So this is thawing out. And as one of the scientists I spoke with, Dr. Vladimir Romanovsky from University of Alaska Fairbanks said by 2050 or 2060, um, the surface temperature will be uh, uh, consistently above freezing in in these areas of the Arctic for much of the year. And so that that was actually, there was a, a more recent study that came out that showed by 2060 or 2070, um, there will be more rainfall occurring in the Arctic than snow. And so when we look at these trends, we're, and that's, you know, we're in 2022 now, we're talking about inside of uh, as, as short as 30 years, that that means the majority of this uh, CO2 equivalent is, is going to be released into the atmosphere. So we're talking about, you know, potentially just from the terrestrial permafrost, uh, looking at a 50 to even 100% increase in CO2 uh, being released. And that's just from the terrestrial permafrost. So I, that's why I went there. Um, this this is, I think, uh, on the in the short term, the most worrisome part of a climate crisis is what's yeah. happening in the Arctic.
2: I do too. There was a, a book that started me off on this this work myself called Climate Code Red by David Spratt um, and Philip Sutton. And, and they their chapter on the permafrost convinced me that everything else was sort of susceptible to change, but in management, but that is way beyond mm-hmm. us. And the words abrupt climate change and non-linear change and tipping points, this just strike fear into my heart. And I'd like you to tell us what you learned from, um, Dr. Natalia Shakova and Dr. Ira Liefer.
5: Right. So Dr. Shakova, uh, the both these people you mentioned are methane experts and Dr. Shikova warned that when we consider the fact that you know that the the the, the seashelf around the Arctic all the way around the Arctic is very very shallow and uh that means um just you know Single-digit to tens of meters that go out very, very far, and then that seabed underneath it, underneath the water, uh, is frozen, uh, and in that is trapped these these methane hydrates. And, and me- m- methane is uh, a far, far more potent greenhouse gas than is CO2. Over a 10-year period, it's uh, 100 year, uh, 100 times more potent and um, still very, very potent, even over a hundred year time scale, much more than CO2 is. So uh, at 20 years, at 20 times more potent, I believe over a hundred year time scale. So as this is going to be released, that means we're going to see immediate effects in in the atmosphere of warming that are much more dramatic than CO2. And Dr. Shakova has written several papers warning that there are these giant methane pockets in various places around the shallow Arctic seabed. And she was focusing particularly on the, um, the, some of the seabeds off the coast of Russia. And um, she was warning that there could be giant bursts of methane. She calls them methane bombs that could release the equivalent of 50 gigatons of, of methane into the atmosphere in a very, very short span of time. Uh, bomb, not like it's going to ignite, but just literally a giant release. And what's very worrisome is then, then we get into Dr. Ira Lifer's studies, who's also in the book that you mentioned. And he went on this, he'd already done studies off the coast in various places. Um, I, I believe there's one that I cite in the book, uh, in the Barents Sea, where they had already found uh, an area where there were these methane bubbles. So there were already, there was already venting happening. And just to be clear, uh, a certain amount of background methane venting is normal. Uh, it happens all around where there's methane trapped below the surface, but, but he, he saw, he found an area where it was a thousand square kilometer area that they had already found millions of the, these vents that were already releasing. And that's really backed up by the fact more recently that there's even U.S. government studies uh, that are coming out saying, look, we're seeing inordinate amounts of methane in the atmosphere. And yes, a a large amount of that is coming from uh, industrial agriculture or oil and gas operations, which are continuing rampantly, at least in the United States and offshore, but but a significant part of this is, is it's clear that, it, 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 you know, they're acting like they don't really know where it's coming from. But uh, it's very, very clear that it's coming from the Arctic. And in fact, um, moving away from that and back onto the terrestrial permafrost, I mean, there's one short bit in my book where I, I, I have it here. And, and um, Charles Miller, he was with a NASA study. That he, this is, and this is back from 2011. He said, We saw large regional scale episodic bursts of higher than normal carbon dioxide and methane in interior Alaska and across the North Slope during the spring thaw, and they lasted until after the fall refreeze. Mm-hmm. To cite another example, and this is still him talking, in July 2012, we saw methane levels over swamps in the Inoko wilderness that were 650 parts per billion higher than normal background levels. That's similar to what you might find in a large city. So think about this, this is happening in an area where it used to be deep freeze in the Arctic all the way up into uh, May or even June. And you're talking about in spring methane levels on the land that are already beyond what we would find in a large industrialized city. Um, and that's now 10 years old. So this is extremely worrisome.
2: How do they see it? Is it satellite photography or how do they see it?
5: Yes, there's, you You can track it uh, with, with uh, there's different satellite imagery that Ira Lifer uses regularly, as well as just general, um, you know, methane levels in the atmosphere measured on a, on a regular basis, just like oh. CO2.
2: Okay, well, you mentioned the US government and the Biden Um, people have got a methane reduction plan and they aim, I just read about it today, they aim to plug leaks from gas and coal projects to reduce venting and flaring and to reduce methane from landfill. They'll give incentives to climate-smart agriculture. But if the extraction of coal, oil and gas goes on, you know, as it's going on madly ahead in Australia... um, I don't see how the methane pledge, you know, made at COP26 in Glasgow, how that methane pledge will have any impact on this permafrost methane. Nothing will stop that now, will it? And if we reduce our emissions, is this... How do you you interpret that?
5: Well, to to that point, um, there's really, you know, the genie's out of the bottle. Uh, There's two things at work when the atmosphere is already warm enough and the thawing that's already happening and the terrestrial permafrost is already happening. And according to one of the scientists I mentioned earlier, Dr. Romanowski, it's already thawing tens of meters of down in places and the temperature increases he's seeing, and he's been studying this for over 30 years across the Arctic, uh, measuring as deep as 30 meters down, seeing these dramatic temperature increases happening. So Whatever you do, you're not going to stop these trends of thawing that's happening in the permafrost that many meters down um, that's been happening now for decades and continues to increase. And then uh, coupled with a continually increasing atmosphere where we look at, you know, almost all of the warmest year. Well, strike that all of the warmest years ever recorded have been within the last 20 years. And I'm being conservative. It's probably more recent than that. And then you factor in the subsea methane hydrates, and this this is even more worrisome, where we consider the fact that 93% of all the heat humans have have pumped into the atmosphere to date has been absorbed into the oceans. Uh, That's enough heat, for example, that if it hadn't been absorbed into the oceans, uh, the the atmospheric temperature today would be uh, 100 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than it is right now. So with the the absorption of that much heat in the oceans, this is why we're already seeing this dramatic increase of methane being released from beneath the Arctic. So that is to all those things are to say, if we stopped all CO2 and methane emissions uh, on a dime today, those two trends I just mentioned are not going to be stopped. And so we have baked into the system is how a lot of the scientists I interviewed put it, Uh, enough heating already that these feedback loops have already been kicked in. And that's why we have to start talking about um, how are we going to be living on a dramatically different planet than the one that we were born into. And it gets, this is why I I get, I was kind of necessitated to get into uh, (laughs) philosophy and heart talking about the heart and grief and things like this in the last chapter of the book. Um, because it's 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 really crushing to consider this that we've um, altered the planet uh, in an irrevocable way and uh, so how are we going to live and you know go through the stages of grief and then find ways to comport ourselves during this time where it, it's all very very overwhelming without a yeah. doubt
2: well i can see that you're reporting from this cryosphere i think you said it was harder than your reporting from Iraq and Afghanistan and these terrible places of war and destruction that was even harder the cryosphere and it drove you deep into yourself and there's a quote I liked from Tiknat Nhat Hanh, who I'd like to honor here in this radio broadcast because he died recently and he's famous as a warrior for peace in Vietnam and as well as his poetry and his question I'd like to ask you how should we use this precious time
5: right and and i really think that is what all of this really challenging information that's hard to take in brings us to and it's what it brought me to and i think it's the equivalent of knowing look we we are in such fragile volatile times uh every summer now things are getting worse with the fires and these extreme weather events and and all of the trends are going in bad directions, um, politically as well as in, in the climate world. And so um it it is, it's how then shall we live? And I I got into uh, you know, I had to basically learn how to let go of hope. Uh that hope I realized was this externalization of my agency that somebody or something was going to show up and kind of lead us into a better future. And really, if we take a very sober look at the current politics globally, just in the West, uh, your country and mine, let's just leave it right there, uh, that uh, it's a crisis politically. We do not have representation that is really doing anything near what would be necessary, not to try to alter the climate crisis are way beyond that point, but just serious mitigation. And so, you know, I personally, this book forced me through this period of grieving where there were days where it was like, why get out of bed? Why write this book? And, um, you know, there were really two things that really helped me. Um, when I was writing the book, It was it one of those points I just mentioned? I had a friend who actually is a, a Zen teacher and, uh, uh, you know, heavily influenced by Thich Nhat Hanh. And he said, you know, Dar, if, if, if one tiny little, the tiniest little organism in the Amazon gets one more week of life on this planet, because you wrote this book, then it's worth it for you to write this book. And that really made me think, and and he was right. And, and then, and then the other thing was coming across people like, you know, another quote I have in the book from the famous Czech uh, dissident writer and statesman, Vaclav Havel, who said, hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something is worth doing no matter how it turns out. And it gets down to just our own morality. Like, you know, another analogy I've used is if we're on the Titanic and we know that it's hit the Berg and we know that it's going down, and we accept that, um, you know, there are people behaved in all sorts of different ways. There were uh, big groups of people that just went to the bar, like, screw it, I'm just gonna go, Taiwan on. And it's like, we see that happening in society, don't we? And then there were people that went around and did horrible things, uh, you know, looting, pillaging, etc. cetera. Uh, and then there were people that pretended like, no, nope, this is the Titanic, it's impossible for it to go down. We're gonna be fine. And then there were the people that uh, people that played music because to try to help soothe people. And then there were people that were going around figuring out where the lifeboats were and how can we help other people get on the lifeboats. And I think that's where we are. And, and so what kind of per, what, which of those people are we going to choose to be? And that, you know, they were doing that without any guarantee of rescue. They didn't know what was going to happen, but the next right thing to a lot of people on that ship was how can we comfort each other? And then how can we try to help save as many people as we can?
2: Yeah. Well, since writing your book, The End of Ice, there have been abrupt changes. You say this in the conclusion of the epilogue, abrupt changes in Antarctica, which is close to us. And you found that the accelerated loss of sea ice was dizzying. That was your word, dizzying. And I think that's true. A lot of people feel this um, overwhelmed feeling, but it's also, they almost can't take in all the data that journalism gives us. It just seems to be blank data. It's not anchored in reality, as you've been telling us. Uh, And you quote the president of Ireland who said, If we were coal miners, we'd be up to our waist in dead canaries. I just love that image. (laughs) You're still drilling for coal and you're up to your waist in dead canaries. And I wonder what's wrong with the media or the signals that we're really not tuned in enough to nature to get. Um, You know, like your man in, in Alaska there, he was tuned in to those changes, but I think most city people probably are not enough tuned in What's wrong with the, let's just talk about the media or the way it's represented to us. We don't get out of the
5: mind. That's it. And, and I think really, I, I, don't, I don't actively work as a journalist anymore. I, I only write books now and they're, they're more focused on um, right ways of being. Because uh, at this point in the crisis, I feel like if, if, if people aren't aware of the magnitude of the crisis, that more data is not going to get us there. And I, I think the, the, the most helpful thing to do is to, um, if, if we're really connected to the planet where we live, uh, then we're going to see these changes happening in very dramatic ways. And you don't even really have to leave, leave your your home to see that if you just look at what's happening in the, the trees and, and the plants and the animals and the insects around where you live. And if you have a, a long-term relationship with that place, you're going to see these things. Like here, uh, already it's, it's mid-February, and there's already buds coming, and this is too early. And then all the insects and birds and action that come with that, and you understand this is this is the new normal. Spring's coming a month earlier than it should now, than it used to not that long ago. And that's if you really think of the implications of that for all the other species, then you understand that's a very worrisome situation. And by me going to some of these frontline hotspots in the book, like um, up into the Arctic or on glaciers or down in the Amazon or the Great Barrier Reef of Australia, um you see this firsthand and it's, it's really, really powerful and moving and emotional experience to see these amazing majestic places upon which our lives depend, by the way, are vanishing before our eyes. And I tried to bring that visceral emotional experience to people in the book, um, because I think that's far more important than just the scientific data. Although as a journalist, I thought it was also important to show people with the data, here's all the studies, and that's why there's 21 something pages of citations in the book of those studies. Um, But I think really the the strength of this book was the the very, very personal and emotional experiences. And I think anyone in Australia that goes, who's dove the Great Barrier Reef back when it was in much better shape and then goes out there now, during a bleaching event, um, that's all you need to know. Mm.
2: Well, just to finish, um, I'd like you to tell us about Stan Rushworth, because I think his advice was against despair and you met him and it's led to your next book. I think he said something about being humble enough to say you don't know. And I wonder how did this lead to your new book, which, listeners, we can read this book in April, I think. It's called We Are the Middle of Forever. Tell us about that yeah, So
5: when I was literally doing the final edits on The End device, I met uh, Stan Rushworth, and he's an elder who has taught uh, Native American literature and critical thinking for three decades. And um, he had a very big influence on my thinking because he really challenged my level of despair and, and uh, where I was and kind of helped me reframe looking at it from a more indigenous perspective of uh, look, indigenous people, and this includes, especially in Australia and the United States have already been through the apocalypse of attempted genocide, enslavement, uh, uh, all the things that have been done to them by a uh, uh, colonialist culture and settler culture. including these dramatic uh, relocations, talk about abrupt climate change. Um, And so we have a lot to learn from these folks. And so that's really, for me, uh, he and I actually co-authored, co-edited rather a book that's the book you mentioned that's coming out soon. And it's a collection of 20 interviews of folks talking about this very topic. And we feel that it's good medicine that will bring some calm and helpful perspective to folks who read it.
2: Well, thank you very much, Dar. It's been a superb interview. Very nice to talk to you, and thank you for that. And listeners, please chase up his book. It's called The End of Ice, and the one coming out is called um, What's It Called?
5: We Are the Middle of Forever, uh, co-edited with Stan Rushworth. And thanks very much, Vivian. It's great to be with you.
3: Thank you, thank you, Dar.
1: Hi there music lovers, it's Jane
5: and Joe here
1: from Music Music Matters. Matters. We're here to remind and encourage you to either renew or subscribe to this extraordinary volunteer-based community radio station that is 3CR. Why?
6: Well, for over 45 years, since 1976, it has provided a space for underrepresented voices
1: and independent musicians outside of the commercial mainstream.
6: We curate and talk to artists that entertain and inform you, whether it's personal, political or both.
1: 3CR plays at least 55% Australian music each week, but Music Matters is always way above that.
6: So the choice is yours, though it will be good for your soul.
1: $35 unwaged or concession.
6: $75 waged.
1: And $150 for solidarity, band or organisation.
6: Go online for further details. 3CR.org.au forward slash subscribe.
1: Or the station during business hours, 9419 8377.
6: You can listen to Music Matters
1: from noon till 2 every, every Friday. Friday. 3CR Community Radio a.m.
3: Hi, Climate Action Show listeners. My name is Amelia Gunaraj, um, I've been interviewed on the show before, but I'm taking over this item as a guest interviewer as we launch into methane. Methane received significant attention at COP26 due in large part to the announcement of the Global Methane Pledge. Led by the US and the European Union, the goal of the Global Methane Pledge is to slash global methane emissions by 30% by 2030. The pledge has been signed by 111 countries and some significant actions have been taken in areas like the EU. A proposal was announced on the 15th of December, 2021 to better regulate and control methane emissions from oil, gas and coal. Methane has been described as the low hanging fruit of climate action with sectors like the fossil fuel industry providing clear and immediate opportunities for reductions. However, there are lots of complexities at play, such as the difficulties in addressing the significant methane contributions from agriculture. Helping us unpack some of these complexities today is Professor Mark Howden, Director of the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions at the Australian National University. Mark is also an honorary professor at Melbourne University, a vice chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and is chair of the ACT Climate Change Council. Today, he's going to help us dive into the world of methane and the role of agriculture, a crucial piece of the puzzle in combating climate change. Mark, welcome. Hi, Amelia. So to start, we'd just like you to tell us a little bit about methane and its role in global temperatures. So, how is methane different to carbon dioxide and how important is addressing methane in our response to climate change?
0: Well, methane is known to a lot of people as nat- uh, natural gas or sometimes as uh, marsh gas if you're in a in a wetland or a mangrove and you have a sort of a, a, a smelly experience, you know, that's at least in part methane. Um, And uh, and it's and it's a very simple what's called a hydrocarbon. So it's got uh, one carbon and four hydrogens sitting around it. So it's a very simple uh, uh, little chemical, but it's um, pretty important when it comes to um, greenhouse gases and and the build up of greenhouse gases. So um, methane, uh, like other greenhouse gases, effectively acts like a blanket in the atmosphere. So so what happens? is that the sunlight that we see with, so the the light comes through the atmosphere and unless there's a cloud or something there, a lot of it hits the surface of the earth and it doesn't really interact with greenhouse gases like methane in the atmosphere. But when it hits the earth, it warms the earth up and the earth then radiates in long wave radiation, whereas that sunlight is short wave radiation, so it's a different wavelength. And that radiation heads out towards space, And and when it hits a molecule of methane, it actually heats that methane up and that methane um, uh, molecule then vibrates really quickly and it re-radiates in all directions because it can't keep on heating up. It just absorbs the energy and then it re-radiates. And some of that energy will come back down to Earth and some of it will continue to go out to space. And that bit that comes back down to Earth is what we think of as as, uh, the greenhouse effect effect. and if you build up the amount of methane in the atmosphere, then you build up that greenhouse effect. You build up the amount of energy that's re-radiated back down to Earth. So it's like a blanket in the atmosphere. more methane you've got, the bit more blankets you have, if, if you think of it like that. And the really important thing about methane is that it's very, very powerful as a greenhouse gas, but it's also relatively short-lived compared with carbon dioxide. And so so what you have to do is sort of have a conversion factor that converts that methane into what we call a carbon dioxide equivalent. And so so depending on how you want to calculate that, you can come up with a number like 28 times uh, more powerful kilo for kilo um, than carbon dioxide. And so methane typically lasts in the atmosphere around about 12 years. Carbon dioxide can be in the atmosphere for hundreds of years and Uh, And so it's that sort of equivalence and that short term nature of methane does mean it's a really great target to focus on to reduce greenhouse gas emissions because you can get short term wins uh, from reducing methane, whereas because carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere for a long time, that's sort of the effect is much longer lived.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So then addressing methane sounds like a really effective way of addressing global temperatures really quickly. So returning to the Global Methane pre- Pledge, this sounds this sounds great. You know, that's why it garnered so much attention at COP26. Um, but this year at the Climate Action Show, we're really focusing on accountability. And as I was trying to follow up on the pledge, I noticed some issues. For example, um, Australia, Russia, India and China didn't sign on, um, but each produce a huge amount of methane. And even for the countries that did sign on, it's voluntary. So there's no formal penalties if countries don't live up to their promises. So in your view, how effective a tool is this pledge in um, tackling methane?
0: Well, we won't know how effective it is for some years yet, but I think it's it's something that's worth trying. And, and it's worth trying for a few different reasons. Um, firstly, it, it elevates uh, the profile of, of methane as a greenhouse gas. And so... You know, a lot of people hear about carbon dioxide. They don't hear so much about methane. Um, but when we look at the historical warming from those two different gases, they're not that far apart. So carbon dioxide has increased temperatures about three quarters of a degree. Um, methane's increased temperatures globally by about half a degree. So, so you know, it's actually not that far behind. So it's actually pretty important um, greenhouse gas. And a lot of people have been ignoring it because of the focus on carbon dioxide. Um, secondly, by by generating that uh, sort of initiative to reduce emissions, I think what we'll see is a lot more resources put into ways of uh, both measuring and monitoring uh, the methane emissions, but also in terms of reducing those emissions, so finding more cost-effective ways of reducing those emissions. And, and I think that's a pretty useful thing to do. Um, and lastly, I think it just uh, is part of a, a process where you can engage different groups uh, in, in that agenda of, of emission reductions. And so, so if uh, you're in a, an industry which perhaps produces a lot more methane than carbon dioxide, uh, you know, you may not have well engaged in this. But by starting to have your methane in you know, a part of that bigger discussion, all of a sudden, uh, you know, you really do need to engage. And so so I think there's a few advantages of the methane pledge Um, But the challenges ahead is that we really don't have a lot of the technologies that are needed to cost-effectively reduce methane emissions uh, right now. So we we haven't been investing in the options that allow us to do things differently.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the key sectors that I think this is a real struggle in is as we're going to address agriculture, um, there's, In my research, I noticed there were um, a few moves already being taken in various countries in the oil and gas sectors, like banning, venting and flaring. Um, So that's those huge um, emissions of methane um, at uh, fossil fuel sites, I suppose. Um, So that seems like an easy and immediate thing to do, but longer term, um, yeah, it's a bit more, the picture is a bit more complicated, Um, especially in agriculture, which is responsible, according to the Global Methane Assessment, uh, for roughly... 32% 32% of methane emissions caused by humans. So I wanted to ask you, um, why, so let's, let's just quickly cover why agriculture is such a significant contributor and what is why is it so difficult to address methane in this, in this sector?
0: Yeah, when, when we look at the growth of methane in the atmosphere, around about half of that growth seems to be from agriculture and increased agricultural activity and half from fossil fuel activities such as, uh, natural gas uh, extraction and, and coal mining, et cetera. And so, in a coal mine, often there's methane gas mixed in with the coal. And so, when you dig up the coal, you release the the gas. And uh, and so, agriculture is actually a big part of the picture. And uh, and the reasons why uh, it's a little bit difficult is if when you actually look at where it comes from in agriculture, there's three big sources. Um, So so one is from uh, ruminant livestock, so cows and sheep, which have have a a particular stomach and that ferments uh, the feed inside the animal and in that fermentation process, methane is produced. The second source from agriculture um, is uh, rice paddies. And uh, and so you've got lots and lots of rice paddies, particularly in the developing world across the globe. And the third main source is from animal manure. So if you think of a piggery or a dairy where the manure is, you know, you know, a lot of manure, high, high production animals. And so so you have that manure um, being collected and that generates methane if you just leave it in a big, big pond. So if you look at um, ways to manage that, um, so only one of those three is, is actually relatively easy to manage because it's what we call a concentrated source. And that's the piggery and dairy waste, whereas the other other two are very diffuse sources. They happen all over the place, uh, you know, all over the paddocks. So with with a, a piggery, uh, you can collect the, the the manure, put it into a big pond, put a cover over that pond, and collect um, that methane, and then use that methane for say combustion to to um, produce energy, and then that changes the methane into carbon dioxide, which is less greenhouse, you know. Mm-hmm impactful but for um uh, rice paddies uh there's uh because many of those happen in in places in the world where the management of the rice is 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 challenging because of the um, sort of technology and capacity uh constraints in those environments um uh that that's that's a challenge there but there are some options uh, so you can you can change the way rice paddies are flooded um, and the timing of flood and the amount of organic material in those rice paddies, and that can reduce the amount of methane. And in the case of livestock animals, uh, we we know that we can reduce significantly the amount of methane per unit product by improving the husbandry, how we look after those animals, improving improving their feed quality, um, and making their life less stressful, so they don't get too hot or too cold. And uh, and so we can actually reduce the methane per unit product. And there are some uh, products coming on the market that can actually just reduce the methane full stop. So, for example, there's a new product called BoVea coming out of Europe, uh, which actually uh, reduces the methane emissions by something like around 40%, but mainly targeted at intensively kept animals, not the animals in Australia, you know, out in the uh, in west of Queensland, out in the extensive rangelands. So, so we have some solutions which reduce but not completely remove methane emissions, but they're only applicable in some circumstances. Mm.
3: Yeah, well, it's good to hear that there is there are some approaches available in all of the areas, and I guess like something like the methane pledge, yeah, is good for focusing attention and resources. I mean, I know, I think I read somewhere that over three hundred million dollars had been collected just for the methane pledge. Um, to I think it was to build capacity um, and technology, because as you said, that's it's lacking in a lot of places. Um, I guess then looking forward, um, so that some of these technologies are being developed or are on the mark or are coming onto the market. Um, what what should we expect to see regarding methane in Australia and what should we push for? Should we, you know, be pushing for more political solutions or really just waiting for technology to catch up?
0: Well, I think in Australia um, methane is a big part of our Uh, emissions profile. And so so we do need to take it seriously. If we don't take it seriously, we're missing out on opportunities for cost-effective emission reductions. Uh, So the things I think we should do is we we should just emphasise that good best practice management is actually a greenhouse-friendly thing to do because we produce less methane per litre of milk that people consume. Uh, secondly, I think we need to put in place the support, the long-term resp- support for research and development that will enable us to reduce uh, methane emissions right across the board. You know, so that's from all of our industries, agriculture and mining, etc. Uh, and and doing that in ways that give a give a benefit to the farmer or to the miner, so so that it doesn't cost them money, it actually gains them money. If you can do that. And if they're easy to implement, then you've got a, a winner, which will be adopted very quickly. So we want something to be adopted quickly. Um, and I think the third thing we need to do is is put in place the mechanisms, better mechanisms for uh, for measuring methane. So uh, whilst they're probably okay for for agriculture because of the nature of our industries and the inventories. Uh, For the mining sector, um, there's big question marks over some of the uh, methane estimates um, from some of those mines in different places. So I think what we need to do is put in place good measurement monitoring systems that bring together things like the current Activity-based uh, inventories with satellite remote sensing and with on-ground measurements of uh, the concentrations of gases in the air, so we have a much much better handle on what comes from you know a given mine system.
3: Yeah, absolutely, um, and for those things as well to be, um, I mean, readily available. I think it's really um, quite tricky to track um the progress on a lot of these you know big pledges and big commitments that were made at cop26 um, because uh a lot of these like inventories are very diffuse they're spread um they it's hard to kind of keep track of everything and what is happening everywhere um so i think a little more um clarity on the action that's being taken will help maintain accountability um do you think i was wondering do you think it is worth pushing countries to Sign up to the methane pledge now. Afterwards, or do you think it was just kind of a, a good thing to happen at COP26 and then moving forward, just continue to raise the profile of methane? What would be your thoughts on that?
0: Look, I, th- I think there was a, um, an initial, uh, you know, engagement, uh, you know, countries signing on as part of Glasgow, and I think that's a good thing. Um, it gives sort of momentum and it gives a sense of collegiality, you know, that we're, we're in this together rather than being isolated. Uh, but it is important to keep that momentum going. And and that momentum can really only kept going by keeping the governments who have made those pledges to account, uh, which means that uh, if they've made promises, uh, someone keeping uh, an eye on them to make sure they deliver on those promises. And and so so I think that's the case with lots of things. It's easy to make promises, but much harder to deliver and uh, you know and, and you know that's just the real world but we also need to recognize that this is pretty important things to deliver on and uh, um, and and try to keep uh, a bit of pressure on.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Like with this interview, (laughs) you know, (laughs) we're keeping an eye on you guys. Um, (laughs) Anyway, um, thank you so much for your time and your insights, Mark. Um, We look forward to hearing more from you. Uh, For our listeners, Mark recently published an article on this topic on The Conversation, and we'll make that available in our show notes for further reading if you'd like to read it.
2: Uh, Mark, thank you very much. um, And listeners, goodbye for now.
0: (laughs) Absolute pleasure, Amelia. Have a great day.
2: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Show. Tonight's guests were Professor Mark Howden, interviewed by our guest producer Amelia Gooneridge, and writer Dar Jamal about his book The End of Ice. The music was by Lapland Element Orchestra. And thank you to 3CR for helping us get this show to air. Please remember, this is Subscribers Week and we need you to subscribe if you're already a subscriber it's time to renew and if you haven't thought of subscribing if you've got so much on your plate just consider how important independent radio is as i said to you tonight the mainstream media is not going to be following up on the methane pledge at um, at cop 26 or maybe even the forestry pledge and we have so much to do in both of those areas and it's only about by knowing about it that we can pressure government and pressure all the institutions and the sectors to move ahead quickly. So thank you. If you feel like subscribing, just phone up Radio 3CR. It's Melbourne 0394198377 or go to the 3CR website page and you'll find subscriptions. So that's enough from me. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck.
0: This is Cole. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's cold. It's cold. It's cold.
2: Tune in every Monday at 5 p.m. to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.